Welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival podcast. We hope you enjoy this event, which was recorded live at the 2020 Book Festival. Hello and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival in its online iteration this year. Uh, my name's Alan Little, I'm a broadcaster and journalist and I chair the board of this festival. This is a very special event tonight for two reasons. The first is that it's our annual Frederick Hood Memorial event. Uh, we're very grateful to the, uh, the investment managers, Walter Scott and partners here in Edinburgh for supporting this event every year. It's named the Frederick Hood Memorial event in honor of a young man who worked for Walter Scott and tragically was killed in a skiing accident. Um, normally, uh, Frederick's family, uh, his brothers and sisters and parents are here to share this event with us. They're here with us online, but not in person. So let's just hear a few words first from Frederick's brother, Ludovic Hood. Hello, my name is Ludovic Hood. My family and I are delighted that the Edinburgh International Book Festival has chosen to proceed with a virtual running of this year's annual memorial lecture, named after our late brother, Freddie, who died 12 years ago in a tragic skiing accident. Fred, a scholar of history and contemporary diplomacy, would certainly have approved of this year's speaker and topic. Fred read and was inspired by Ambassador Powell's seminal work on the Rwanda genocide. He and I both worked for the United Nations in East Timor, at that time governed by legendary UN envoy Sergio de Mello, the subject of Samantha's second book. And I know Fred would have devoured Samantha's account of her time in government. My family and I are, as always, indebted to Fred's friends at the firm of Walter Scott, who established and continue to support this lovely annual tribute to our beloved brother. And that is the second reason why this is a very, very special event, especially for me, because it's my privilege to introduce you to the author of this remarkable and frankly quite riveting book, The Education of an Idealist, uh, Ambassador uh, Samantha Powell. Uh, Ambassador Powell has had a remarkable career from taking herself to, off to Bosnia uh, in her very early 20s, uh, where she and I met in the Holiday Inn in, in besieged Sarajevo. Uh, she had almost no previous experience, although that didn't show to me. Uh, she, went then, she then went on to, after a couple of years living in the Balkans, to Harvard Law School, where she wrote uh, a Pulitzer Prize winning book about genocide and American power in, in an age of genocide called A Problem from Hell. She went on to work for a junior senator for Illinois called Barack Obama and then followed him, of course, into the White House and uh, in his second term became the United States ambassador to the United Nations. This story, the story of this life is beautifully told in this book. Uh, central to its journey, I think, is is the journey she's taken from the young idealist of the title to somebody who grapples with the realities of power and tests the extent to which her own idealism can stand up to the realities of wielding power. And she wasn't even born in America. She was born and raised for the first nine years of her life in, in Ireland. Ambassador Power, welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. I wish we, we had you here in person, but it's great to see you. You too, Alan. And what, what everybody should know is that Alan Little was the giant uh, to whom all of us uh, who cut our teeth in Bosnia in our uh, early 20s or some cases uh, older, but uh, the, the one to whom we looked up. And uh, I can't tell you what a thrill it is uh, to be here with you and to be doing this uh, in honor of Frederick Hood, who uh, was only getting started, but who had 
had a passionate interest in putting his idealism to use in the world uh, and doing good in the world. So it's a real honor to, to be here with you and in a, in a discussion named after such uh, an incredible young man. Thank you very much. That's very humbling. Um, let me start with you in Bosnia. Uh, what took you there? You were so young. I didn't realize how young you were, but you threw yourself into that war. Why did you put yourself in harm's way like that? Um, well, you know, I think, first of all, the, the barriers that keep people away from plunging and sort of trying to do good, however they define good, um, are often multifactorial, right? One is just insecurity about one's own ability to make a difference. The other is if something is depressing and dark, uh, it's it's sort of you, you feel even more impotent when you read about it and you and you learn more and so you deliberately kind of keep at arm's length and don't learn more, and that certainly probably would have been me. But I got an internship out of college, working for a, a man who'd been a career U.S. Foreign Service officer, uh, and Foreign Service officers don't always get plum ambassadorships or get to rise within the system. Political appointees come in as Donald Trump has shown more than any other president, but as every president does, I was a political appointee. But this man uh, became an ambassador in Thailand when the Cambodian and Vietnamese uh, refugees were, were fleeing to Thai shores. And he was very instrumental as a US government ambassador, getting the Thai government to open its borders. He then by coincidence was an ambassador in Turkey when Kurdish refugees fled Saddam Hussein's crackdown in Northern Iraq in the wake of the Persian Gulf War. And when I met him, he had just left the US government. So he'd had these experiences. He had this sense that the US government could be a force for good, not that it always was by any means. And he was newly unleashed to express his views. And I was just kind of his coffee pourer, you know, helping him find his code at the end of meetings. I was just out of college learning, but because my job was to fact check his articles and edit and do things like that as well. I wanted to learn more just to be good at my job, just to be a good intern. And, and so that barrier of keeping at arm's length because something is dark or depressing melted away uh, for sort of instrumental reasons. I was just trying to do a good job for him. And, and once, as you know better than anybody, uh, as the person who blazed a trail uh, in Bosnia with your reporting, once you actually learn what is happening in a place like that, and, and especially in the wake of the Cold War, when someone like me was graduating from college at a time of such promise, Bosnia was this weird anachronism, you know, where they were targeting people on the basis of religion and ethnicity and setting up rape camps. And it just seemed, you know, like it was from another era. And it was this last gasp, it seemed. Little did we know that it was a preview of what we'd be living uh, in so many parts of the world today. But given that it, it, it felt so unjust and so out of place with the fall of the Berlin Wall and so much of the progress that was happening, and given that I, just by virtue of working for this guy, I happened to, to learn more, I then you know, was hooked. Once you dipped your toe in to that cauldron and learned, again, the, 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 the kind of suffering that was afoot, the internal debates that were going on in the UK and the US and elsewhere about what should be done, the standoff within the UN Security Council between the US and Russia, again, a preview of some of what we're dealing with today. Uh, it, was, it was so uh, devastating, but also very interesting and very challenging. It, and so that was what caused me to take the plunge and 
see whether I could do something on the ground that would be useful. And the experience clearly burned a hole in you that's still with you, and it burned a hole in me. You know, it was, uh, I think I came to think that it had broken my heart in some way and changed me, reshaped me for the rest of my life. I think reading this book, it clearly had that kind of formative, it was that formative experience for you too. How did it shape you, do you think? I think just nothing from the time that we lived in the in Sarajevo or traveled in Bosnia. None of the kinds of things I've read about in the newspaper since feel abstract anymore. I, I, I think that's probably the best summary I can offer. You know, when I read about a refugee camp today or uh, even health clinics that don't have PPE to deal with the pandemic, it just, it's, it, I just rooted my, my, my imagination, we call it my moral imagination or just my ability to be in someone else's shoes, I think is that, it, that sensibility was just heightened by being proximate to such, what felt like at the time, such needless suffering. The you journey know, you made it, there was similar to my own in the sense that uh, we, I think a lot of us were pretty sure that bearing witness to what was happening, the, the injustice of it was very clear, where the war was coming from was very clear, whose fault it was was very clear, and we thought we could make a difference. You say here, we wanted our articles to matter and our government's actions to change, but the longer the war dragged on, and I was there for for nearly four years, disillusion set in. We realized that bearing witness alone was not going to bring the saving action. It was not going to force the Western democracies to intervene to prevent the suffering. Was it disillusioning? I think when I got on the plane to leave, I, I had exactly that feeling. And, you know, especially, I don't mean to keep flattering you, but, but just... You know, I didn't, I wasn't somebody on the ground who uncovered concentration camps, you know, like the ITN Channel 4 people, you know, I wasn't somebody like you who depicted the siege of Sarajevo at its most brutal time and, and ensure that that was in the inbox of every world leader uh, when it mattered most. But for me, it was the massacre in Srebrenica, uh, having the ability, I covered that for the Washington Post, I knew that the articles I was writing were reaching the President of the United States, which had you know, in my youth was my, my fantasy somehow that an article of describing what was happening would reach somebody and move them in some way. And it just didn't. And 8,000 Muslim men and boys were killed. And so when I left, I left feeling, you know, I'm a freelancer, I'm a stringer. At the height of my career, even when I'm, you know, the correspondent for the BBC, uh, it'll still just be my dream to have my report reportage reach world leaders. And if, if I'm relying on them or some junior staffer to get put what I've written in front of them, that's inefficient. <laughs> it felt but it was, like it wasn't enough. It and was so I, I that, tried to put myself on a different, on a different track. But it was Srebrenica that, that changed the international policy. And it was America in defiance of the British and French allies who didn't want the intervention. It was America who forced finally military intervention and ended the war. Was that for you uh, an indicator of the way in which American power could be used to improve things in the world? Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, in, in contrast, our experience, Alan, with, uh, you know, people who reported, whose first reporting experience was the disastrous U.S. invasion of Iraq, right, where you just see the 
misuse of American power and the devastation it can cause. Whereas you and I saw the devastation caused and the hunger that people had on the ground for those planes flying overhead to get involved, to, to intervene. I mean, that's something, you know, my students now, I, I, I teach uh, at Harvard Kennedy School and Harvard Law School and, and Harvard undergrads, they, they can't even conceive of uh, American power in the terms that you and I sort of understood it, at least in the, in the early 1990s after the Persian Gulf War and, and in that circumstance. But I had left after the massacre in Srebrenica had occurred, but before the intervention occurred. So I actually arrived at law school, you know, trying to put myself on a track where one day maybe I'd be at The Hague chasing down Lodic and, and ensuring uh, at least that the perpetrator of the crimes that we were witnessing ended up behind bars. So I didn't have the experience that some of our colleagues had of, of seeing all that reporting finally tip the scales. Mm. But, but you asked about the lesson and just in a nutshell, what I learned when I reported for my first book, A Problem From Hell, about American responses to genocides and specifically about the aftermath of Srebrenica and the aftermath of, of the reporting out of Sarajevo about the siege was that it was the political pressure it was grassroots and grass tops pressure on President Clinton. It was the future of a NATO alliance and a sense that if it couldn't do this and deal with this problem in Southeastern Europe, how would it have a life beyond the Cold War? It was this other set of strategic and domestic political forces. It wasn't ethnic cleansing or genocide alone. That was, of course, a, a necessary part of the equation because it's what spawned a lot of that pressure and that sense of frustration. But that was revelatory to me, you know, that that it had to have some nexus with some, and it sounds naive even to say that, but with uh, domestic political pressure. And today, when you see whether it's the you know destruction of the Rohingya in Myanmar, uh, you know, or even what happened in Syria, the domestic political dynamics were very, very different. There was never the kind of same mobilization that you saw in the US and even in Europe uh, as a result of the Bosnia conflict. I want to get on to Syria shortly because you were at the heart of power when uh, some key decisions about American policy over Syria were made. You went to law school, you said, I just couldn't make myself care about the topics we were studying. And you threw yourself into this five-year project to produce this big, seminal book called A Problem from Hell about American policy in an age of genocide. And then, you know, I, I laughed at when I was reading the, your attempts to get it published. You couldn't find a publisher. Your original publisher changed their minds, didn't want to publish it. You went around and it reminded me of a book that I co-wrote with Laura Silva called The Death of Yugoslavia. Publisher after publisher after publisher said, said no. In fact, one agent in London said to me, are you kidding? A book about Yugoslavia? Who wants to read about that misery? It's on the TV every night and nobody understands it. And you had problems getting it, but eventually you found a publisher and it went on to win the Pulitzer. Tell, tell me about getting that news. There's no bigger accolade in American journalism than, win, than winning the Pulitzer. Well, maybe I just use it to, to say a word about um, what any, any of us who are lucky enough to have a journey like I'm able to describe in the education of an idealist, but we're getting support from somewhere. And my mother who moved my, my younger brother and me to America and effectively went to America with another Irishman um, who became my stepfather in that five year period. It's not like I set out to write a book and said, oh, I'm on a five year writing project. You know, I always thought I was three months away, six months away. <laughs> And it was just this dreadful mission creep that came to take over my life. And so A Problem From Hell, the title of the book, 
is what my mother uh, said was basically a description of my experience in actually trying to find a publisher. You know, it was a problem from hell rather than the, the horrific substance of the book itself. But when I got this call, of course, I'm not above you know, wanting all those publishers whose rejection letters I still have, uh, you know, to, to get the call even before me about, you know, crazily winning the Pulitzer Prize. But, but I called, you know, my mother and, uh, and my stepfather who were in separate locations and, and I reached my mother first and, you know, just her, the deep, the, the sort of Cork City girl coming out of her, she said, Jesus, Mary and Joseph, you're joking. And, uh, and then I called Eddie who, and my, each of these individuals in my life who I write about in the book, but they'd read every word of every draft of this book. And there'd been so many drafts. Uh, and so I called Eddie and I said, you know, believe it, Bob, I've won the Pulitzer Prize. The book has won the Pulitzer Prize. Or I said, I, I've won the Pulitzer Prize. And there's a long pause. And I'm thinking maybe he's getting choked up and maybe he's a good God for what? <laughs> and so, you know, to me, it's like anything. It's about sharing it and and just what they put into me and my American journey and all the opportunities I had here. And then to to be able to call them, and 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 then Eddie would go to this day goes around the Barnes and Nobles. Now they're open again in New York, at least. And uh, you'll identify with this. I'm sure you have loved ones who've done something similar. But you know when your book is kind of buried, languishing in, in the back. It was my my dad, my stepfather, who would go and take the single copy of A Problem From Hell and, and put it on the front table, you know, with Stephen King and all the others. And, and sometimes he'd get caught and get excommunicated from various Barnes and Nobles, but just the support you have. And, and uh, w- when it, when it bears fruit, it's, it's, that's the, the most. One of the things that part. surprised me about the book was how candid you are about your, your family and your own, uh, your own, you, you, you struggled with anxiety uh, in, in various forms for a, for a long time in your life. And you talk about your father, the man that your, your mother and you and your brother left behind in Ireland when you moved to the United States at the age of nine. And you, you sort of discover in adulthood that a lot of your underlying anxiety, including very strong and vivid anxiety dreams, uh, are related to the way in which your father died. He died as an alcoholic. And you came to understand that you from early, from, from childhood, had come to blame yourself for his death. What do you mean by that? Well, again, it's, it's in shorthand, it's, it sounds so implausible. You know, what does a child have to do, especially now with everything we know about alcoholism? But from a child's perspective, you know, we left Ireland, came to America. I was the center of my father's life. He'd become a big drinker. It's the reason their marriage broke up really more than anything. So he was drinking beforehand, but the notion to a child that that drinking is not a surmountable problem, you know, that it's a disease, that it's that the, that it's sometimes defies human agency, often defies human agency. That's 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 hard to comprehend. And so when we went to America initially, I thought, you know, it would be the best of both worlds. I get this American experience, everything big and bright and large and lots of sports, new sports even that I that I wasn't familiar with. And then I get to be with my dad, you know, through all the holidays and and but he as when we left, he began to drink more when we went back the very first time as part of the custody arrangement. It's amazing. It's a miracle that the 
Irish courts gave my mother custody, you know, given that she was the one, in fact, leaving my father and given how prevalent drinking was, it wasn't like that was uh, a big, uh, you know, or a noteworthy phenomenon uh, at that time in Ireland. This is 1979. But when we went, my, my father was so lonely and desperate that he actually tried to keep my younger brother and me in, in violation of the custody, almost in a kind of quasi kidnapping scenario such that my mother came in the middle of the night and, and sort of pulled us away and we had this car ride to race almost to the airport to get out in case the courts would change their mind. So tenuous did she feel as a woman and a female professional, uh, you know, did she felt her legal claim to us was. And then that would prove the last time I saw my dad and he, and he died what to me was very suddenly uh, um, several years later and in the intervening time, I guess all I'd say, Alan, is, is I think I never have a conscious, I don't have a conscious memory now of watching the clock and of waiting. But I think every day of my life between the time I left him in the middle of the night and then the time I learned he died, I was waiting for him to come and, and or waiting somehow for the answer to be presented by the, by the grownups. And so to your point, I learned in my, you know, I got through my 20s, never all that good at romance, uh, much better at the kind of professional stuff that I dug into. And I, I was repeating these kind of patterns and, and, you know, choosing people who would never really be there and present. And I came to realize just how terrified I was, uh, both of losing somebody again, who I idolized in the way that I did or who I loved in the way that I love my father, but also just how guilty I, I, how much guilt I was carrying, you know, as if my departure was the, was the difference maker. And only by working some of that through in, you know, pretty intense therapy. And it was actually when I was right around the time I met Obama. So I was, you know, sort of following this shooting star, you know, professionally. Meanwhile, I was kind of hollowing out a little bit personally as I, as I dove back into, you know, this, this past that I had kind of left in a, in a box. And I don't know where I'd be if I hadn't, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot of fun. So, so let's um, talk about how you met uh, pre uh, the future President Obama. Uh, at, at the suggestion of a mutual friend, you sent him a copy of a Problem from Hell and he read it and he called you a few months later and said, let's have dinner in Washington. And he said at the start of the dinner, I've only got 45 minutes. How did it go, that dinner? So I was thinking, okay, I'm not gonna be ordering a cocktail. Gotta talk fast, which is what I do anyway, so that's okay. You know, he what was so interesting about him was uh, he got even in the dinner, he he got kind of he he was the this superstar who just landed on the on the scene. He had just been elected. He had, a, you know, we were in this restaurant, everybody was looking at him. You could just tell you were with this this bright light in American politics and he's being asked to, to, you know, showcase all these dinners and he was winning the Grammy even for his bloody autobiography for his, for speaking or reading his autobiography. I mean, everything was sort of tracking for him. And so suddenly he looks on his calendar and he's got dinner with a, you know, what he would have probably typecast as a genocide scholar. He's thinking, what the hell, why am I here? So, but then, as I started to say, his his curiosities got the better of him. And so in addition to kind of interrogating me and my biography and how I landed in America and working on human rights and so forth, he was really interested, not so much in mass atrocity prevention per se, but in what one can learn about looking as it happens at the issue I had worked on genocide, 
what one can learn more broadly about the dysfunction in American foreign policy. You know, to what extent does the U.S. response to the Rwandan genocide where 800,000 people died and the U.S. only real response was to withdraw U.N. peacekeepers from Rwanda, what does that have in common with an entirely different set of mistakes in invading Iraq? So a sin of omission, arguably, and a, and a sin of commission. And, and it boiled down to a discussion we had just about human consequences and how rarely they are taken into account, how rarely the voices and perspectives of people living in the kinds of countries that you've covered or I've covered, that how rarely those are kind of present in deliberations. That's why you end up in a situation like the Bosnian one we discussed where domestic political forces end up being kind of more salient and more relevant in, in that cost benefit analysis that, that policymakers are doing. So I was very struck just how he would go sort of small in order to go big. And also I was struck by how un, uncircumscribed he seemed by Washington taboos. And I should have known that because he'd opposed the war in Iraq when virtually the whole Democratic Party was throwing its weight behind George W. Bush in the wake of 9-11 and felt they couldn't, you know, put their, stick their heads up. And he had taken, uh, you know, what was at the time looked like a brave, but also a very foolish stand politically. So I shouldn't have been surprised by that. But I think then having worked with him in the White House, that that sense I got at that dinner played itself out on Cuba, on being willing to engage with Iran, you know, even in sending the U.S. military to West Africa to deal with a, a pandemic, that's not exactly part of the Washington playbook. So, so I, you know, that was, I think, what impressed me and made me, you know, think, is there something more I can do for this guy? The, one of the most affecting chapters in the book uh, is, it's affecting precisely because probably the worst thing that happens to you happens in it, and also the best thing that happens to you happens in it. And that's the, uh, the trouble you got into over an off-the-cuff remark during uh, Barack Obama's uh, campaign for the Democratic nomination against Hillary Clinton in 2008. You're in Ireland. You're doing a book tour for your second book about Sergio Di Mello, the UN diplomat who was killed tragically in Iraq and who was a friend of yours, I think. Um, and you gave an off-the-cuff remark, off the record, you thought, to a journalist for the Scotsman newspaper here in Edinburgh not holding it against, yeah. you see how large a person I've become, that I have not held it against all Scottish people, that it was the Scotsman that caused my career to implode. You called uh, Hillary Clinton a monster, uh, and then the headlines flew around the world. You were leading all the TV talk shows and TV news bulletins in the United States. The way you describe it in the book, it was utterly devastating uh, to you personally. I, you know, everything is relative, and I now, of course, have far more perspective, but when you become a global scam scandal, which I don't recommend, and I, believe it or not, I'm not even exaggerating. There is a narcissism in villainy. I learned through this process, you do come to think that you're on people's minds in a way that you're definitely not. People are thinking about their own problems, but at the same time, I, I had just uh, started dating somebody I'd met on the Obama campaign, Cass Sunstein, the writer and uh, author and, and law professor, and uh, we had started dating. And I, when, I, when it broke, when the story broke initially in The Scotsman and then on Drudge, um, first I didn't believe that I had said it because it didn't reflect my view, but I, I forgot in the early moments that I had lost my temper in front of a journalist. So I had in fact said it. So there was that that I had to get through. But, but I wrote to Cass and I said, uh, I've just done this terrible thing and it's a huge 
it's a huge story. It's a huge scandal. And he struck back. He said, I'm sure it wasn't so terrible. I'm, sh- I'm definitely sure it's not going to be a big story. And then he went on his computer and he Googled and he would hit refresh and Google, you know, kind of every 15, 30 seconds. And it was just, you know, just was going, suddenly it was in Urdu and, you know, Chinese characters. And it was, you know, in Spanish, he'd see my name. And then occasionally they put monster, not in Spanish, but just in English. So he knew it was me. And it was weird. It was just, uh, it's something I don't think that could happen in the same way in today's news environment. But my main concern was, I was a, uh, you know, a true believer in the Obama campaign. And it was a dogfight at that time in the primary race between uh, Senator Clinton and Senator Obama. And I thought, you know, very much, again, with some of the guilt I talked about earlier hanging over me, my anxiety dreams throughout my life have always been about hurting the ones you try to help, you know, and hurting the ones you love. And here I was, <laughs> it was crazy. It was, this thing was happening and uh, Obama's polls, you know, started to dip because he was running a, a campaign on not engaging in ad hominem attacks. And here his advisor had done this terrible thing. And uh, again, it passed, but it, it, at the time I really thought that I was going to be the cause of, of great harm to him. So so I offered to resign and initially he uh, took me up on that and said, this is crazy, it'll pass, you'll be fine. But then as the, the days passed and it still was leading the, the news in, in America and beyond, uh, I had to resign the campaign. And it was the first time in my life that I could even remember that I was without a task, without work, without a cause of some kind, even even my sports teams in my youth were my cause, but but here, you know, whatever my, my I, was, I was just staring out at a, a blank horizon and but I had just started dating Cass and in that period it was the first time in my life I think I really let somebody take care of me and um, we're now married and have two kids so uh, so something positive came out of that utter kind of vulnerability and and yeah. that space to I mean, just you, you focus get, on you get the personal. you get the bleakness of those weeks across very well but also this redemption through your love affair with Cass and you were married within a few months of that and your life had turned nothing else to do Alan (laughs) (laughs) nothing else going on it was it was the perfect time for him to propose but you came screaming back they didn't knock you out for long because you you went to the White House with Barack Obama and you say he comes across as quite a, a, a funny engaging um companion and friend because there's one very funny moment where you say Richard Holbrook, the great American diplomat who we both knew, who sadly died uh, not, not long ago, uh, he arranged a meeting for you and Hillary Clinton so you could apologize uh, in person. And you told Barack Obama that this was Richard Holbrook's wedding present to you. And he, he said, don't most people get toasters? I mean, he comes across as quite a funny, witty companion. Yeah, and very interested in the in the romance and the intrigue, you know, of the people around him, his advisors and so forth. I mean, think about, you know, he's a, he's a giant, but he's also, he was a guy, he's a guy who, uh, you know, was struggling to make his mortgage not long before he catapulted onto the scene. And, uh, and so then suddenly, you know, even in the White House years, he finds himself insulated in these ways. I mean, the only, yeah. what, what passes for getting out is being on a golf course. One reason he played a lot of golf is, is, because you're so surrounded. So, so this feature of him, I think, became even more pronounced where 
you know, getting in on the gossip and and trying to match make and do things like that. Is very, he was very good at that. You, you say you noticed that even before he took office, as soon as he was president-elect Obama and even more in the White House, that a change came over him immediately. He seemed very alone, you say. Uh, and you struggled to get access to him. You said it hurt your ego that you didn't have the same access to him that you'd had when you were just friends on the campaign trail because he closed down his private email account. How difficult was that, those early weeks, early months in the White House? It must have been hard for you to believe you were in there in the first place. Uh, and again, not having access to this man who'd become such a good friend. Well, particularly because I had been assigned the human rights portfolio. And <laughs> if we go back to that original dinner, you know, we'd spent a lot of time at that dinner talking about how promoting human rights at the highest levels of government, you know, can feel like pushing water uphill and you're the skunk at the lawn party. You might want to cut off military assistance to an abusive army unit or regime. And there's a lot of gravity in the American national security establishment, irrespective of who the president is arguing in the other direction. So my hope for making a difference in this job as being human rights advisors stemmed in some measure from him, from he, President Obama, having my back and, and, and this shared recognition, right, that these voices cutting in the other direction, at least raising other factors, that these voices would be heard and, and be present. And so because he was navigating uh, the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Iraq, figuring out what to do in Afghanistan, but above all, uh, digging us out of the global economic crisis at that time, he had to delegate. And so many of the kinds of bilateral issues or even you know, the threats that cross borders, it was gonna be surrogates for him who might be chairing those meetings. And I didn't have anywhere near the, the personal relationships with them that I, that I had with him. So what I, I described this in the book, but Cass, it was very careful. So we were married by then and uh, very careful about using government email, uh, which eventually always becomes public, but he would sign off uh, emails to me with the acronym CWGHN, which was shorthand for "Can we go home now?" <laughs> In other words, can yeah. we? Can we? We've given this little experiment to try, and but we both just felt we weren't as effective as we wanted to be, and we had our list of things that we were really trying to get done. Um, so it wasn't so much about access for access's sake, although, as you say, that wasn't easy for my ego, but it was more. How do you actually elevate these issues if a person who is really unusual as president in, in caring both about the traditional understandings of national security, but also recognizes that repressive governments over time are rarely stable American partners? I, you know, Someone at the table who has that view becomes very important to, to me being able to push uh, my agenda. But, but over time, I learned how to work around some of these impediments, including his, his schedule and the fact that he had a, yeah. a very important job. It seems to me that throughout this period and throughout your time as uh, US ambassador to the United Nations, you, you the mature diplomat, accomplished diplomat and, and policymaker, are in constant dialogue with a young, young woman who went to Bosnia because you are measuring your own actions in, now that you have power by the standards that she set herself as an idealist. That's really, that relationship, if you like, is at the heart of the book. How can I be true to that, to the ideals of those earlier years? And you, you mentioned that you were dealing with Darfur, which again is a subject very close to your heart. Um, you went there, saw much of what was happening for yourself when you were still, before you started working for, and she, and you, uh, for Barack Obama. And you said, uh, 
you say, you wrote in your diary, Sudanese troops were massed and, and around Darfur. 30,000 people were gathered at the UN base. The UN was about to pack up and leave. So very reminiscent of Srebrenica, of course. And you write in your diary, and Samantha Power, fine upstander, had no effing idea how to write a decision memo. So there were moments when you felt quite powerless and you felt you were letting that earlier young woman that you had been down in some sense. You know, kind of. I mean, I did constantly get asked that question, which was a bit surreal. You know, what what would the old Samantha Power say to the new Samantha Power? What would the young say to the old? On one level, what you say about that dialogue is is very resonant with me. But but on another, I I, I really did have the experience of of being kind of, I mean, for lack of a better word, my continuous self. I what my learning was less about, oh, like life is nasty, brutish and short, and it's so much harder to get things done in the in the government than I thought. I mean, remember I'd, written, I'd spent that five years interviewing people about how hard it was to even get genocide on the agenda. I'd experienced Bosnia with you and, and, and others, not like Bosnians, but at least bearing witness to what was happening. And so I didn't come in wildly optimistic about the agenda that I was pushing, but I did, I think that what you, the passage you read, which uh, again, I, I didn't say effing, of oh, course, yes, general, I spelled it all out, but uh, as I want to do, but I I think that's a perfect passage actually in enshrining what, what was more the dilemma, which was, I have to get better at this. Like, I don't know what I'm, I, I don't know how to use these tools. I know what I want. I know that uh, Darfur is as important to me today as President Obama's human rights advisor as it was when I was working as a journalist and uncovering a mass grave with my friend John Prendergast in the desert. I'm the same person. I'm carrying the memories of that. They don't go away. They don't fade. Um, but learning how to write a decision memo, learning how to find allies in the Defense Department or in the intelligence community, um, you know, figuring out where you can find allies in Europe, because remember, the Obama years also coincided with the human rights agenda retreating a little bit uh, or receding, at least on the European kind of priority list, even as it remains something very important in terms of entry to Europe, a different question entirely about whether you want to sanction Chinese officials or how quickly you want to lift sanctions in Burma. And so learning kind of where were your allies and, and how could you present uh, a case to the president for why what you're proposing was likely to be effective. So it was more like my, my idealism remained intact in the sense that it was still me and I still had the same agendas I'd had that night having dinner with Obama, but it was more, you know, the growth of kind of getting a PhD in, in how to move the system and, and failing when I wasn't able to bring those coalitions inside or outside uh, to bear, as on Syria. I want to ask you about two moments. Uh, the first is Libya and the second one is Syria, because you were, you were a key player in, in the, the group that formed policy. And Libya is, again, one of those moments when your career and your life intersects with my own. And uh, you, you describe a key meeting. Uh, you were angry when you learned that Britain and France proposed a no-fly zone when uh, the Libyan people had risen up against Gaddafi and he was, he was preparing to, to send troops down to Benghazi and really cause mayhem. And lots and we know that lots and lots of Libyans would have been killed as Gaddafi retook control of parts of the, the, parts of the country that he had lost. Britain and France wanted a no-fly zone. You and Obama thought that was quote unquote, a turd sandwich, is the, the expression you attribute to President Obama. Uh, 
what did you want instead? And, and describe that key meeting that you described with such power in the book. Well, what I wanted is what everybody wanted, which was, of course, a negotiated uh, settlement of some kind where Gaddafi would stay the hand of violence and the protesters would get to exercise their voice peacefully. But in the period we're talking about, Gaddafi showed no interest in that. And it was just the, the violence that he was employing, the militia that he was sicking on protesters was just escalating by the day. And the, the British and French proposal it, it had an expressive feature. And this is very common. This is actually the Trump administration's specialty is expressive foreign policy that will like blowing it, you know, ripping up the Iran deal is about showing you can rip up the Iran deal rather than actually achieving a set of national security objectives. So in that instance, I think there was, you know, good intentions behind it, but Gaddafi wasn't really using air power, as you know well, uh, to carry out the killings that were going on of protesters. It was more ground forces. So my view was, and it, it was something that President Obama embraced, was proposed by many people in the room, um, but was that if we could mobilize an international coalition of the kind that protected the Kurds in Northern Iraq in the wake of the first Gulf War, uh, and if that was something that the UN Security Council, meaning Putin's Russia, uh, would get behind or allow uh, to go through, that in order to avert a massacre, that would at least be a way of freezing things in place without that massacre occurring so that po those political talks uh, could occur. The freezing of things in place occurred. Uh, Russia did go along with it with Putin's blessing, uh, um, shockingly, because that's uh, the kind of uh, operation that Russia had shown great skepticism toward. Uh, the whole world was really united behind it. There was some concern, of course, because anytime you use military force, it's so dangerous and it never deals with root causes. But what didn't happen is you didn't see any appetite in the wake of that kind of stopgap mission uh, to engage on the future uh, political transition. Mm -hmm. And so unfortunately, as that mission extended, um, you know, the, the situation on the ground became more and more chaotic. And some of what we see today, although it's gotten much, much worse, the seeds for that were planted in that lengthy period uh, before Gaddafi had fallen, but as the conflict uh, intensified with NATO in bombing overhead. So you hit uh, the, uh, Britain, France, America, Italy, I think, were all involved in the coalition. Uh, now, it didn't take to my own life because I had been sent a few days before that uh, uh, meeting that you described with such power in the book to Tripoli. And by an editor who said, the Americans are against an no-fly zone. Nothing's going to happen. It's going to be quiet. Just go and mind the shop for a few weeks. Uh, you won't have to work so too hard. And 48 hours later, uh, the policy was in place and the day after that the bombing started and, and you know you were in your early 20s or mid-20s when you decided to give up being a war correspondent I was in my 50s by now and I'd lost my father a few months earlier and I it was a moment for me when I thought what right do I have to keep putting my family through this especially my widowed mother and my siblings and my, my wife. And it was a turning point for me. And you have had those moments in your own career between, especially in the early days, but also throughout the, the pressures on you as such a high powered working person, but also as a young mother. Yeah, I mean, it's exactly, and the, it's, it's that question that we often don't ask ourselves, right? Often it's gravity that propels us or in the case of high stakes diplomacy, when I was UN ambassador, uh, you know, I don't know if I'd call it an addiction, but certainly 
it was incredibly meaningful to be representing the United States and to feel like you could mobilize a coalition, you know, get countries to give beds or doctors to West Africa and that that could help avert Ebola deaths. I mean, that was, it was an incredible privilege to be a part of that. And at the same time, I had two kids while I worked at the White House in Obama's first term. And by the time I left being UN ambassador, it wasn't taking risks of the kind that you described, uh, you know, being deployed to war zones. We would go overseas and we did do risky things like go into the heart of the Ebola pandemic and and so forth, but but nothing like, uh, you know, what I used to do when I didn't have the protection of the, of the US government. But it was just the it's the, the cost of being away from your kids as a, as a mom, just weighed every day, weighed on me. And uh, one of the stories I tell in the book is being on a call with Secretary Kerry about uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we're trying to figure out which sanctions make sense and will have the most influence. And my son, Declan, who's I think seven at the time, comes up and tries to get my attention, is kind of tugging at me. And every parent has had that experience of, you know, no matter what the context is, and and I'm shooing him away and just saying, I just gotta finish this call, and you know, kind of you know, trying to be coherent at the same time. I'm I'm trying to be gentle, but also trying to push him out of the room, and he stomps off as so many kids have, as I probably did as a kid as well. Uh, you know, mouthing off, but in his case, uh, this really hit me. But he he left the room saying. Putin, 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 Putin. When is it ever going to be Declan, 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 Declan? Um, and that was just, I was like, oh, it's good. The time has to come soon. And even as we weigh, as we hope that uh, those of us who believe in a humane America again and, and a diverse and inclusive America and a more equal America and an America that leads in the world again, we're rooting for, for Vice President Biden. And, and I personally would love the opportunity to serve but I know full well uh, the the trade-offs involved for for my kids and and um, mm. you know my my, my kids uh, they're they're still rooting for Biden but I, I think um, you know they're very ambivalent about about an election coming already uh, you know for this reason because I want we know I, yeah I wanted to get onto Syria I'm not going to hog the questions now it's an important question but but we're running out of time and I want to get to the audience questions so the first one comes from Carol T. Has the USA's position internationally, as in your words, a force for good, been irreparably damaged by the current administration? And how will a Biden administration act differently? Um, thanks. I mean, first to be clear, I think, you know, Alan and I described the context in which we were watching NATO planes fly overhead and hoping that either through diplomacy or through them getting involved, that somehow they bring this war to an end. But we didn't think the United States was only a force for good. Uh, I mean, I don't think anybody can be blind to just the the, the kinds of mistakes uh, that U.S. leaders have, have made. Or even we we talked about Libya. We didn't talk about Syria. But you know, people look to the United States, and and the United States often disappoints expectations uh, for sure. And and any war, Latin America in the Cold War, you know. You name it. Uh, there's there's uh, an awful lot that has happened in the name of U.S. national security that has been harmful uh, to people abroad. But the force for good point comes about and hasn't hasn't the, the necessity of there being leaders for good in the international system. That need is greater now, uh, I think, than at any point since the end of World War II, with China's rise with them propagating a very different model of leadership, one that would leave the state deciding who has rights and who doesn't and what those rights are, one that would censor speech, um, you know, lock people up on the basis of their religion, 
that's the leadership model uh, that Trump's retreat from human rights, from alliances, from international leadership, that has hastened the rise of that model. And so the, I think the questioner used the word irreparable. Um, the hole that a vice president Biden would inherit if he became president is, is even bigger, so much bigger than the one that Obama inherited with the financial crisis and in the wake of the invasion of Iraq. But the need for democratic countries to come together and what the collective action problem that exists on the international stage when there is no first mover uh, means that I don't think we can, any of us can afford to let it be irreparable. That is the work has to be done to restore trust, to nurture alliances, to establish uh, a set of shared interests, even with those countries with whom we disagree vehemently like China and where we have, uh, where confrontation is inevitable in some sectors, there still has to be scope for carving out areas of cooperation given the nature of global threats. Because so we can't afford to accept, I think, that this is the new reality, but it's a hell of a climb back. Throughout my working life, I think, whenever I've been involved in reporting a crisis where people have demanded international action, they say the international community must do X. Actually, what they mean is the United States must do X. But now this pandemic that we're living through is probably the first global crisis in perhaps a century in which almost nobody looks to the United States to take a lead. That's a big change in our world, isn't it? Yeah, and we see that we're in a moment where we're not yet in a China-led world order where when someone says the international community, they don't mean China. That's not what people, particularly who are repressed by their governments, um, you know, uh, they're never going to be waiting for China as the on the on the white horse or with the cavalry. Um, but uh, you know, I think that I've also never liked that phrase "international community," nor do I like, by the way, when uh, people denounce the UN because it's really important for countries to be held accountable and not hide beneath the banner of the, the blue flag. You know, the, the UN is a, an institution comprised of countries and the WHO is the same. Uh, if China hadn't covered up early, if the United States hadn't pulled out and had uh, even under Trump uh, gone back to the role that it's played in other public health crises, mobilizing other countries, contributing money, PPE and the like, uh, you'd see far less suffering in developing countries and you'd see the crisis last for, for uh, you know, less, less time, you know, extending into, into the future. So U.S. leadership, um, we're not yet in a position where you can imagine anyone replacing it. But I think the key when, if, if Biden is to win the election, which is a big if, but if his uh, return uh, of the United States to the global stage occurs, it's going to now be very, very rooted in democracies coordinating together and mobilizing together in a way that alliances have always been important rhetorically. We've always kind of watered them, nurtured them as much as we can, but now they are an acute necessity because China's economic leverage and its political objectives really are antithetical, I think, to, to many dimensions of the world that we want to live in. There's a question here from John B. Did your Irish origins influence your career as an international diplomat? And do small states have a role in world affairs? I think it's hard to know why one is the way one is, but one of the things I did when I became U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. is I went and I visited with each of the 191 other ambassadors to the U.N. 
and was stunned, honestly, that more than 50 of them had never been visited by the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., the U.S. permanent representative. And I love these their so-called courtesy calls. And they, this wasn't going to their countries. This was like a very modest thing to have set out to do is just to travel throughout Manhattan, uh, you know, to visit with my colleagues and, and learn what was on their minds and where they come from and how had they grown up. And I mean, the stories, and I, I write some of these stories in the book, but, you know, meetings with small island states who are potentially going to become extinct, the countries themselves becoming extinct uh, because of rising tides and, and actually hearing about themselves and how they're thinking about their families and where are they going to go? How are they going to get visas in a, in a world of increasing walls and, and thicker and thicker borders? And just imagine you're not even an emitter and, and your country's about to be submerged and you can't get a visa to go live anywhere. Imagine what that would be like. And so would I take those visits and, and take those kinds of experiences on board if I myself couldn't imagine a small country like Ireland, uh, either in its history or in the present, being felled by some crisis that a superpower didn't pay attention to? You know, I don't know. But I, I know that the most effective diplomacy one can do is one where you put yourself in the shoes of, of others. And, and to, to see America from the inside on the outside at once, if you can, if you can kind of retain the discipline to do that is so important uh, because we, America can bull in a China shop, right? Uh, often not even noticing what it's knocking over in its wake. And yet it is also a catalytic force that can mobilize coalitions and no other country has that juice. Uh, and hopefully it's a juice that America can, can get back on behalf of worthy causes. This is frustrating because I've got so many more questions from, from the audience as well as myself, but uh, I can see the, talk, the, the, the clock uh, ticking. I did an event here a couple of nights ago with Anne Applebaum, the American writer who you know, and we talked about pessimism and optimism. She said, in this day and age, it's irresponsible to be pessimistic, which was a great line, I thought. And I've got a question here from Kim, oh no, Anita. And she says, and we'll, we'll probably have to make this the, the, the last question, what keeps you hopeful? Uh, the short answer is young people, but the larger answer is the level of activation uh, of people who've never seen politics or public service as their purview. Uh, you know, have always believed that that's something that happens over there, you know, whether that's just in the last 24 hours, professional athletes have just decided not to play their games uh, because they can no longer abide footage of uh, black people being shot by law enforcement and there not being accountability, or the fact that we have more women in America running for office by leaps and bounds uh, than have ever run in any prior election cycle. Uh, in 2018, highest midterm mid turnout in this country, uh, you know, since Watergate era. And you see it all around the world. Last year was the year of the protests. More protests uh, occurred around the world, usually rooted in concerns about governance and corruption, but then in any other year in modern recorded history. So it feels like you know, the problems are huge and that's what causes the pessimism and sometimes the fatalism in some, but so many, particularly young people on climate in this country on guns uh, and on Black Lives Matter and on, on issues uh, that, you know, the older generations, including my own have not gotten right, but just people just saying enough waiting for top-down changes that have not been forthcoming. You know, we have to take this 
um, uh, you know, seize it, uh, it will not be given. I, I think that's powerful. We've got one last thing to do in the Frederick Hood Memorial event, uh, but, but first of all, I want to say that I thoroughly recommend this book. It's a great read and uh, it's full of insights into the way American power it manifests itself in the world and how a policy is made uh, in Washington, D.C. It's called The Education of an Idealist by Samantha Power. Uh, this is, and if you, if you want to buy the book, you can buy it at the Book Festival's online bookshop by clicking the button at the bottom of your screen. We're making these events free this year. Uh, if you've enjoyed them, if you're enjoying the festival, we can't do it without your help. We want to come back next year, obviously, stronger than ever. If you would like to donate what you might have spent, perhaps, on a ticket uh, to the festival in Charlotte Square Gardens, then you can, again, do that by clicking on the donate button, uh, and your support is very, very, mu very much valued, valued by the festi festival. Um, Frederick Hood wore his sartorial distinction was that he wore a fedora hat. And each year we give the Federal Hood Memorial uh, guest a fedora to wear. We can't present it to you in person. We've sent it to you in advance. Will you now, Samantha Power, please? What do you think? Fantastic. It was made for you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Power, Samantha Power. It's been a great treat. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Edinburgh International Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at edbookfest. You can hear more events by subscribing to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts and you can also watch a selection of our events in full on our website and YouTube channel.